Welcome to Devices and Desires. I'm Father Brian Wandell. This is a new podcast that we're starting. Uh, we're looking at culture, at the culture we live in. We're exposing cracks in the stories that our culture tells, stories about progress, self-image, success, and happiness. And we're trying to figure out what it looks like for the gospel to open up from within that fragmented culture that we live in. We're going to talk about things like technology, pop culture, music, books, anything is fair game as we search out wholeness and holiness in life today. We will bring our perspective as Anglican Christians, but whoever you are, we hope you'll track with us as we examine the devices and desires of our own hearts as well as those of our culture. Before, before we get started today with our topic, uh, who's here today? I'm Father Brian Wandell at Church of the Atonement. Uh, I've also got with me Deacon Matt Trailer. Matt, how are you doing? I'm doing well today. Thanks for having me on, Father All Brian. Right. Matt, Matt, what church are you at? I happen to also be at Church of the Atonement. Great. Well, thanks for being here. And we also have Mr. James Kibbe over here. Uh, James, can you say hello? Hello. And uh, wh- where are you at? Where do you go to church? I go to church at St. Bartholomew's Anglican Church in Tonawanda, New York. Excellent. You play music there, right? Indeed, I do. Great. Thanks, Jimmy. Uh, and finally, we have Father Andrew Thibault. How are you doing, Andrew? I'm doing well, Brian. Thanks. How are you? Good, good. And uh, Father Thibault, uh, also known as Andrew, is also at St. Bartholomew's. Is that right? That's right. That's All right. right. All right. We're getting started with our episode here. So we're talking about smartphones, tablets, uh, wearable technology, including uh, smartwatches, all kinds of things like that. The way that we bring the internet everywhere we go now, we are constantly connected to everything. Uh, this is important for us. So we're looking at how technology shapes how we live out a life of faith and faithfulness. Faith and faithfulness, specifically looking at smartphone and computer technology, mobile technology, and everyday life. I think it's not just an accessory to our lives anymore, it's how we live. Uh, So that's really important. It's not just like, hey, you know, things used to be so much different in my day, um, but, you know, there's actually something substantially different about the way people live out their lives, and especially the way that Christians live out their lives. So we're going to dive into that today. Um, and so we're going to start out, we're going to start out, just, you know, what's, that, what's that look like? Um, the image that we think of here is that uh, the, the cultural narrative that we're in is like cement. It seems like a solid thing, so we're going to describe that. Uh, but we say there are some cracks in that narrative, the way that story is told. So we're going to expose those cracks in the story. And then finally, we'll look at what it looks like for the gospel to flourish from within that cultural narrative. So first, what's the cement? Uh, what's the culture that we're living in? It's a connected one, and it's constantly at our fingertips. So for the first time in human society, if you can think of something, then right now you can see it. Anything that you can think of in your brain, you can see at this very moment if you want to. Uh, Any piece of information, for the most part, you can look up and you can know it right away. Uh, and this uh, this reached a tipping point. Uh, we're in 2020 now, and about eight years ago, uh, 2012, is when uh, we hit a tipping point in the U.S. When, for the first time, a majority of Americans had smartphones, had access to this. Ba- basically, everyone now. Uh, by 2017, uh, 75% of teenagers had an iPhone, not a smartphone. Specifically, the device sold by Apple. An iPhone, 75% of teenagers. That, that's what we're living in. 
Um, any, any of you gentlemen want to shed light? What, what is this culture that we're living in with, with smartphones? What's it, what's it look like? Um, how, how is this different? If this wasn't a podcast and we were actually on video, I can pretty much demonstrate it by showing you. It's like this. Right, right. We, nobody, we'd we'd all be staring really down. That. We'd, we'd all be staring. Yeah, yeah. We'd all be staring down at a lot our more neck problems. I think that's right. That's right. Neck yeah, problems. Yeah. Poor posture. Yeah. Actually, there there are studies that show that the the spine of kids is is changing, <laughs> that there is more of a pronounced curvature from looking down at. So it's just interesting the the way the body changes. But amazing, <laughs> Matt. Any any thoughts? You know, what's it, what's it like to live live now versus in, in previous times? I guess what immediately comes to mind is the uh, the constant draw to pick up your device. Mm, um, yeah. I think is kind of the has the greatest experiential weight for me. Um, first thing in the morning, first thing I do, first stimulation of my day is picking up my phone. So, uh, yeah, I think that's pretty indicative to most um, Westerners' experience at this point. Yeah, that's a big deal. Thanks for saying that, Matt. Uh, I want to just jump from there right into uh, the image of we've got like the cement of our culture. It looks like one monolith, but there are cracks within that. It's not as monolithic as it seems. Um, and like you said, Matt, uh, we've, we've got this great stuff at our fingertips all the time that people would have killed for in previous ages. Um, and it creates you're kind of given this like real barbaric like, oh, like yeah. civilization like people are killing each other i feel like that's black friday nowadays i feel like we've become less civilized uh that's possible that's possible <laughs> we'll get into that um uh so we've got this image here uh of the the cement of our culture we've got cracks within it so what are the, what are the cracks in this narrative that we have going on uh, Matt, you mentioned about this like almost like addictive quality. Chemically, it's it's really interesting. Some of us know now that uh, there's there's a chemical release when you get a notification on your phone, right? We, our phones are these notification machines. The chemical is dopamine that we get. We think of dopamine as the happy chemical, and so you think of it as if uh, the the notifications on your phone are making you happier. But that's not what dopamine is or does. Dopamine gives you a sense of anticipation. And so, uh, so when you get a notification on your phone, what you feel there, that, that feeling of like something is for me, is a rising sense of anticipation. And then you answer that notification. You see what that text actually is, that notification actually is. And it, it, never, fa- it, it never lives up to the promise for happiness that dopamine promises you or your phone promises you. And so what happens then is that you, uh, you go into a, like a withdrawal almost, and you need something more. You need more use of your phone. So it, chemically, you're being drawn to your phone, but your, your phone can't, you can't supply the happiness that uh, the chemicals in your brain are requesting. Okay, so how does this actually work out in our, in our culture? Here's just some quick, quick um, information, and then I'm going to kick it out to you guys. Uh, so I'm going to draw from some research by um, a sociologist named Jean Twenge. Uh, she wrote a book in 2018 called iGen, Why Today's Super-Connected Kids Are Growing Up Less Rebellious, More Tolerant, Less Happy, and Completely Unprepared for Adulthood. Okay? So like I said, around 2012, 2010 to 2012, that's when American, the majority of Americans using smartphones. And around that time, there, was, there were some noticeable changes that started to happen in sociological data about Americans. 
So here's some things that happened. Uh, around that time, there were declines in the amount of time that kids spent hanging out with friends away from their parents. So, so kids are less likely to spend time with their friends away from their parents. Uh, there's been a decline in the number of kids who get their driver's license by age 12, like a noticeable decline in number of kids. It used to be almost every kid had their license by age 12. Um, well, now they can just call an Uber. That's true, yeah. Uh, there's been uh, there have been declines in dating. Um, so in uh, 2015, high school seniors, uh, about 56% of them were dating, whereas at that same age, high school seniors um, among the boomer or Gen X generation, it was 85%. So it went down from 85 to 56% of kids are dating as their high school seniors. Um, there's been uh, a decrease in high school seniors who are working. So it used to be that 71% of high school seniors had a job, down to 55%. So, so these marked decreases in s- actual social behavior, uh, things like dating, working, uh, spending time away from your, your parents, uh, getting a license, mark- marks of independence in some ways. Like it's, it, these things just happen at some point, and they're all being delayed. Okay. Can I, can I also say too, like even with dating, like if you think about it, like even dating's changed because of these mobile devices, right? And the way that we meet people, right? Yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah, so, so the way the way that we're doing things, um, so so what this does is then it stretches adolescence out to something even beyond what it's ever been before, right? So adolescence is um, happening, is moving on later and later. Uh, the article author here she says, um, uh, Gen X. Um, Gen X started to push adolescence further, beginning with millennials and continuing with iGen, kind of like under 20 years old or so. Adolescence started contracting again, uh, not only because its onset is delayed, um, like children are becoming adolescents later, um, but across from a a range of behaviors, drinking, dating, spending time uh, unsupervised, 18-year-olds now act more like 15-year-olds used to. And 15-year-olds now act more like 13-year-olds used to. Childhood now stretches well into high school. Okay, let me just um, like kick this out here. Um, we're coming from uh, a certain perspective on what a good life is. Uh, part of that just includes ma- maturity and growing up to being adults. Um, wh- what does this mean? Uh, what does this mean when adulthood is getting delayed further and further uh, by not just like uh, people making immature decisions, but like by people not making decisions at all? Like they're just staying in their rooms and spending time on their phones. Um, wh- what's that mean for the kind of like good life that they're going to live? I guess one thing that comes to mind is just the sense of, um, you know, what do we call someone who's kind of self-focused and who um, doesn't move forward while well, you've been describing it. We call them childish or, uh, you know, right. <laughs> adolescent is a nice way of saying that you're underdeveloped. Um, and it just seems to me that um, this really is um, formed in us by our mobile device usage um, because it gives this sense that we can be self-sufficient. You know, we can um, uh, open our phone, click a button and a book arrives in 24 hours or um, you know, we can, um, uh, from a glowing screen, uh, affect the world in various ways that makes us feel like we're, um, in charge or powerful. Um, but really what we're doing is, um, a sort of farce. Uh, we, um, have this, uh, sense of, um, uh, ability to be self-sufficient, uh, 
And it's interesting that that kind of self-love keeps us childish in many ways. Uh, seems mm-hmm. like you're partly describing. So you, you describe it as self-love. Okay. I think it, it, um, our smart devices uh, form us that way, um, hmm. give us that, that sort of picture. Okay. Um, so you're thinking about, thinking about a teenager who's hopefully trying to grow up to be like an adult who's mm. responsible. And we say like hopefully to be uh, a faithful disciple, right? Um, Jimmy, you've got some thoughts here. I don't. I don't know if it's so. Like, if we're looking at like teenagers, um, I don't think it's so much that. I think it's more so um, seeking approval and finding it in, say, like your Instagram or your Snapchat posts mm-hmm. and stuff like that, and spending a lot of time there, scrolling through, you know, and you know, posting stuff or connecting. You know, I I don't think it's so much of oh, I can order a book on you know on my phone or. Or that I think maybe like for like for like more like adults it it might be that way in in terms of in in terms of the way that they um, interact with um, the the uh, market and stuff but in terms of uh, in terms of teenagers I think it's more so approval uh, based I think um, it, it's almost like you can kind of be in your own little world right and um, you know, and it, and it, it's like instead of living your life out in your group of friends, you know, out in kind of like social activities, you're living your life out through a screen. And it's not even a real life because you're, in, you know, if you look at it, it's like, you know, your your profiles and stuff like that are all designed to make you look like a really interesting person. And, you know, and so you'll like interesting things. And it's not because you maybe find them interesting. It's because you think other people are going to find them interesting, you know. So I think that's, I think from a teenager perspective, I think it's more so of an approval thing than it is necessarily of like, um, you know, um, convenience thing. Yeah, it's it's almost like uh, thinking about the the teens in the study. It's almost as though they're choosing, or less choosing maybe even, and being uh, drawn or enticed to live out their lives virtually, hmm. rather than to enter into. Uh, public life together right so yeah, yeah. and in in a way that is more embodied it's more um people sitting face to face now instead for the the teen it's um i'm going to do this through the screen yeah and that's a good point so like the the christian i think tradition has always um agreed with at least to some extent with you know, Aristotle's idea that we're, we're basically social animals, right? That that's like an, an important part of who we are. And, uh, you know, what are teens doing, right? They're learning how to figure out how to be adults and they're learning out how, they're learning how to so- socialize, right? Um, right. And, and, and how, like, what are the right cues, you know? Um, how, how can I expect um, to get a certain response from someone else? Uh, you know, children are doing that from a young age, but teenagers are especially doing that with adults on an adult level. Like that's when you're supposed to learn to be an adult, right? Um, well, right. And, and part that goes on with that is what story do I inhabit? Yeah, like, yeah. What is my story? Who are my people? What is, what is the thing that gives me meaning and purpose? What's the picture of the good life? Yeah. Right? And we learn that through social interaction. We learn that through... Uh, our bodies and our totality uh, engaging with other bodies in public life together. And if we're disengaging from that now to, to go straight through a screen, we're, we're cutting that short. 
so today if if kids are if most if people who are growing up learning uh learning social activities learning what it's like to be uh an adult they're doing that through screens now uh what are some things that they're missing out on uh that we're doing that in helpful ways previously well social interaction right um and i mean you can extrapolate this out perhaps one of the things that um the author in the study talks about is um, that as kids spend more time on the screen, they spend less time in other social activities. Right. Um, so it's in those other social activities, be it church or engaging with the family um, or even other mediating institutions like um, community uh, clubs or things like that. It's in those political uh, arenas, yeah. political being uh, social life. It's in those arenas that we, we learn the stories about who we are, right? Uh, in church, we learn that we belong to God, that we are his people, that he's done a work for us and made us his own. And that as part of that, and part of that identity that we get from that uh, in our baptism, um, we learn how we are to inhabit the world. Right, right. Right. So we love God and we love our neighbor. Um, and Wait, so, so can you be baptized on a phone? No, no, okay. there's no baptism. Okay. Thank, on, thanks for clarifying. I'm not sure. Unless maybe you got like a water gun that came out well, of it. Maybe kind of, you could do. They're waterproof now. They're waterproof. Well, <laughs> but that's so, with a phone, but uh, not so, through a phone. So, uh, so, so some of what you're saying, uh, you know, what I'm hearing a little bit of is um, the philosopher Alistair McIntyre. He said, like, if you want to know identity, like, if you want, if you want to learn identity, you need to learn roles. Like, people learn identity by learning roles, right? And they learn roles. Uh, by looking at like people who there's sort of like the you know the handyman the the politician uh, there's this sort of like archetypes of roles that we kind of see out there we see people living and how how do we know what those are we learn what those are by practices by things right, that people ritual. do and th those happen by habits and, right. and those are things that have to be done S uh, Stanley Hauerwas picks up something like that yeah. and you uh, James K A Smith talks about uh, the human person as a loving liturgical creature. Uh, we could also we we could also just go straight to scripture and think about uh, the Shema in Deuteronomy. Hmm. Uh, God has taken His people out of Egypt, and He's brought them to the Promised Land. They're standing there with Moses on the precipice of going into the Promised Land, and and it's Deuteronomy. It's a rehashing of the law, and Moses is standing there in front of them, and he commands them: Know your God. Your God is the one God, and mm -hmm. you cannot have any others the lord your god is one but then he goes on to explain the way that they're supposed to hand this down to their children right they're supposed to teach their children this story and he tells them don't just do it sometimes do it as you're going in as you're going out as you're laying down as you're sitting he wraps up the whole fullness of the day and he gives them a liturgy a ritual way to do this to give their children uh that story that tells them who they are and what they are to do in the world. So to look back then on teens today, where are they getting their story? If the story is handed down through interacting within a family, if the story is handed down through interacting with a particular community uh, that teaches you your roles or, or however we want to think about that narrative, where are these teens who are locking themselves up in their room and interfacing with the screen for 10 plus hours a yeah. week and where are they learning their narrative? And, and I think, I think what's important here, we're saying story and narrative, like people are hearing story. We hear stories all the time. We watch movies, you know, right. there's all kinds of stories out there. And in fact, 
uh, like the Shema, like, like you were saying, that's also a story. But there's almost like a deeper level of story of the actual handing down process and the, the way right, that the people traditioning learn things. Process. Just like, and the same thing with phones and mobile technology. There's the stories we see in our videos and that kind of thing. But then there's the deeper story of how we're getting that. Uh, what it means to pass that on to someone else, being a, a consumer instead of a participant. Right. So uh, part of that is that not only do we learn the, the narrative arc, where the story is going, but in learning that story, we also pick up the, the rituals right. for the story, the, the actual things that we do with our body that take that deep into our bones is the way that James K. Smith, it just becomes something that we, we yeah. do automatically without even thinking about it. And that those things then shape our hearts and they teach us, the story teaches us ultimately what is the ultimate good. Yeah. What is the good life? What is flourishing? And my heart then begins to be aimed at those things. I love that thing. I'm going to chase after that thing. That thing then becomes my purpose. That's really good. Thanks, Andrew. Jimmy, what do you got? Um, I just uh, just want to kind of follow with uh, Andrew with his uh, statement because I think story is really important. I think sometimes we have a misconception of what story means. And when, if you look back at ancient civilizations, narrative and stories, what really kind of knit civilizations together and really gave them an identity is their stories, their, is their narrative. And I think um, in going with that and, and, and when we talk about the teenagers, also remember too that teenagers are inheriting what they're getting from their parents. And so nowadays, we don't just have teenagers, but we have adults in the home who are spending time on the smart devices as well. And right. so all that's doing is that just encourages the teenagers to also then do the same thing. And so it's kind of like the children mimic what their parents are doing. And I think that is also an, you know, something that we have to look at because that is an, is an issue. In of, of yeah, so this is, this is actually really important. Before we get into uh, what it looks like for the gospel and discipleship to flourish within this, we're not just talking about, oh, hey, the kids these days or something like that. Like, this is particularly helpful to look at what's happening with children because they, they didn't receive any previous stories to this one. Like, this is all they've got. Right. But, but this is obviously something that affects— like, who are, who are the people who are staring down at their phones all the time? It's everyone. Like it's not the, it's everyone who's doing this. Yeah, right. You walk into a restaurant, you see a family of X number of people sitting at the fa- at the, the table and every person at the table from right. the two year old up to the grandfather mm-hmm. are all looking at their screens. Nobody's looking at each other anymore. Right. And so with, with teenagers, it's like, wow, this is the only thing they're being formed in. But this is important for all of us because we're always constantly learning, reinforcing, relearning stories or uh, losing them, dehabituating, dropping them out of our lives. And so what? Uh, so this is also what's slowly happening to everyone who's being habituated by, by this kind of thing. I just wanted to go back to uh, one comment that was made earlier, and, and then maybe this will uh, dovetail into uh, the next stage, Father Brian. And that is uh, something that uh, about these smart devices encouraging uh, our understanding of ourselves as sort of disembodied agents. Um, I was listening uh, and reading a brief article from Andy Crouch recently who talks about these things. Um, And he was contrasting, for instance, um, you know, watching a movie on a tablet compared to reading a book. Um, And you think, well, you know, these things are relatively similar. Um, On one hand, 
you know, a book has one positive of perhaps engaging your imagination more because it's not filling in pictures, all these sorts of things like our smart devices too. Um, but another thing that a book has and that um, I had professors in college who uh, bore this out um, is that you actually learn differently when you're even reading something on a device compared to reading a physical book. Um, it just so happens that all uh, the four gentlemen sitting here have young children um, and uh, just reflecting on the physicality of life that you really <laughs> experience uh, when you're playing with your kids uh, when they're small. When you um, say physicality, you mean vomiting and diapers, right? <laughs> I have a daughter, so those of you with older boys would probably know better uh, what what we're talking about here. Um, There's so many ways we can go to this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, fill in uh, life story uh, of toddler from uh, your parenting. Uh, nonetheless, um, I think they have something important to teach us um, in that our worship tradition teaches us as well um, mm. about the embodiedness of life that um, we're not uh, uh, platonic spirits um, nor are we uh, only kind of physical things seeking pleasure um, but that we're embodied beings we're um, looking for meaning and purpose um, but we're also doing that in a in a physical way and our smart devices um, tend to push us towards um, a sort of what we call gnostic view of you that um, escapism we are, that yeah that we're not actually embodied um, and you have all sorts of movements uh, that are interested in how could we exist in a non-embodied way or something you know um, and I, I think this is just emphasized by the smart devices that we interact with um, that that form us to assume that we're we're pure will or something you know that we can just affect the world by pushing a button uh, on our in our technology um, particularly a smart device so Matt, Matt you'd say that. Um, a life that has more like things you do with your body, not just watching a phone. Mm. Th that would be a more interesting life. Would you say? Yeah, I mean, we've brought up the good life, and I think we're starting to move that direction. Um, so, what does a, a virtuous human life look like? And if we're embodied beings who experience the world that way, we're probably going to end up with a different picture of mm -hmm. what the good life looks like. Than so, the, the the church father Irenaeus says, the glory of God is man fully alive, right? And that, that's definitely our vision, right? We, we, what does it look like to live? fully alive um i think it, it's i think it's helpful too to also think about if we tie it to the gospels the fact that the word of god became flesh and so we have to understand that you know that you know if it's you know god you know existing in the material world and in, in, in embodied you know and inhabiting it you know in that way that that it's to us a sign that it's you know that the material world that you know we are meant to exist in that that were, you know, uh, like you mentioned, the Gnostics, you know, Gnosticism, you know, the idea that, you know, the body is bad, you know, the Platonic, you know, the body is material is bad, but the spirit is good. And obviously our, our, our uh, Christian um, tradition and that would, would say, no, uh, both are good and we are meant to live in that. Right. So the temptation here, whenever we're diagnosing something pro like a problem with our culture, the, de the temptation is to say, um, like this is going bad and therefore we're going to see chaos, right? Like it's like things are all falling apart and it's going to be chaos around us. Um, but if what we're talking about is, is losing something, then what we might see as a result is not necessarily like chaos, uh, like violence, things like that necessarily. We might just see people like being less fully alive, right? Oh, and, so, and so that, that's actually one of the, the 
traps in looking at this kind of thing is that we look for what might be wrong with this kind of with with um, with what's going on with smartphone technology that kind of thing, and it's it, we want to say like oh maybe people will be more violent because they're seeing more violent movies or so there's a hookup culture or something like that. When in fact, so going back to teenagers, teenagers now are less likely than the previous generation to get into a car accident. Well, that, that seems good on the face of it. They, are, they have less of a taste for alcohol than the previous generation. Okay, so you got less people binge drinking. That, seem, that seems good. They're less uh, susceptible to the general ills of, of drinking culture. Um, so that, that seems good, like on the face of those kind of things. But the flip side of it is that rates of teen depression and suicide have skyrocketed since 2011. Uh, there's a mental health crisis happening right now, which is significantly pronounced and has gone up a lot since since this kind of culture has been been going on. And there there are very good studies that have tied uh, level of happiness among teenagers to the amount of smartphone usage. Uh, the best thing that a teenager can do for their mental health at this point is to put down their phone. Like there, there's some pretty good studies on this. Okay, so if this this is what we're talking about. Um, we are slipping into ways that we are becoming less fully alive because of some things that are going on with the way we live our lives with mobile technology, or at least it's practically happening. So, so what's it, what's it going to actually look like? We have to live in this culture that we're in right now, right? We're not going back to 1950. Uh, we're not going back to 1300. Um, like we're, we're in the culture that we're in, Okay. So what's it going to look like for the gospel to flourish within this particular culture, within the cracks in the culture that we see right here? Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to shift from the kind of negative side to the positive now. There's a, a study done by the Barna Group uh, recently. They had a book called Faith for Exiles. And, and the goal of this book was they, they looked at different groups of people who had grown up in church, some kind of contact with the church when they were growing up. And they followed four, four groups of people. Um, and they said that they said, oh, okay, we're going to label these groups based on how much they connect with the faith today. And the, the first group really has has no connection; they're really not Christians anymore. Another group kind of occasionally go to church. Uh, the third group, they go to church. The, statistically, there are numbers; they're in, they're in the pews on a Sunday, um, but there's not this sense of like responsibility to the faith they're living out, that kind of thing. And the fourth group they call resilience people who have resilient faith. They're taking the kind of church going of their youth into resilient faith into adulthood. And so Bar the Barna group, they look at this and they say, okay, what can we learn from that fourth group, the group of resilience, the people with resilient faith in the midst of, uh, so this culture of uh, digital technology and mobile technology, they call it digital Babylon. Okay, so five ways they say for a new generation to follow Jesus in digital Babylon. Um, I, I want to just take a step back. We're, we're looking at people who are doing this, uh, but this is, it goes back pretty far. There's a, a great sermon from Martin Luther King in 19, 1965. Um, that's 55 years ago now. It's reflecting on technology in general. He said, we have allowed our technology to outdistance our theology. Okay, Martin Luther King, we have allowed our technology to outdistance our theology and for this reason, we find ourselves caught up with many problems. So I, I want to try to catch up some of our theology and some of our practices to the, the technology that we, we've got right here. Um, I, think it's, I think it's the temptation is to ask the wrong questions, uh, not just to get the wrong answers, but to ask the wrong questions. Uh, we say things, people in churches say things like, 
okay, so how can we minister to people who are on their phones all the time? <laughs> and so then we come up with answers like, well, our church needs to have uh, uh, an amazing Facebook page that's posting really funny memes that people respond to and then share. And if our stuff gets shared, then we're doing well in reaching, reaching people. I, I would like to say that I am in favor of funny memes. <laughs> <laughs> I, would, I just want to say that. Um, we, we do have priests here if this is confession. Um, uh, so so that, that, that's one question that could be asked. But we want to ask another question. We want to say, how can we develop wise disciples in the midst of digital Babylon, what we're living? How can we develop wise disciples? So this question assumes there are cracks in the culture, which we were talking about. And people are going to come up against that because we are built to live fully alive. And we know when it's not working. And it's not working. Uh, so the church will be a legitimate answer to these questions if we can if we can answer them. Okay, so I'm going to take three three practical things that the Barna study uh, gave among people who have resilient faith in this kind of culture. And so I want to hear from 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 you from you all here from Matt, Jimmy, Andrew uh, about what you think of these. Uh, one of the things they said was that um, people who have resilient faith in digital Babylon they develop muscles of cultural discernment. Okay, I like this language. It's not just that they have cultural discernment or they know how to discern culture, but that they develop muscles of cultural discernment. Here's a quote. Our society is more like a character, um, uh, is more like a character in our lives than the setting of our lives. Okay, so our society is more like the, uh, like a character than the setting of our lives. So we normally think of our culture as just, it's like, it's like uh, in a play, it's like all the, all the uh, props around you, but it, our culture is something that acts upon us, okay? Right. Um, so given that, uh, here's the question. Um, how do we know what that culture is saying and doing as a character in the play? How can we develop those muscles? I, I just like to say that I like that they use the word develop those muscles. And I think that's really helpful because discernment's not something that you're just going to automatically have, that it's just like, oh, boom, okay, now I've got discernment. I can discern everything. But it's something that takes practice. It takes time. It, it, it takes time in prayer. It takes time in the Word. It takes time in thought and contemplation and just thinking about those things as it relates to the faith. And that's, I think, how we kind of discern. So I, I like that because I think that's really helpful for people to understand that, okay, maybe you're not there yet, but keep working at it. You know, keep mm. working at it, you know, and, and, and trust the Lord and, 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 and spend that time and spend that. Don't be afraid to spend that time in thought. And that might mean turning your smartphone off and just being. But but those muscles are something that we have to develop. Uh, we all have to develop. And I think that's really helpful right. language in, in terms of this. Yeah. OK, yeah, yeah. To be able to um, to discern properly is uh, to remember that our stories matter. Yeah. Uh, and for the for the Christian, for the the resilient disciple, uh, we have to know our story. How do you teach somebody to tell a counterfeit? Do you teach them uh, all the the great ways to to tell that this particular dollar bill is fake? Well, no, that's not actually what you do. You don't teach a bank teller to identify marks of a fake bill. You teach them how to identify the marks of the real bill, and you become so well attuned to the to the real bill that when somebody puts a fake bill across your your desk you know this is fake Hmm. and so for the resilient christian uh, for the resilient disciple 
we have to know the story that we inhabit. We have to know um, the culture, the, the Christian culture that's handed down from the apostles uh, all the way through. Uh, and that can come in various different ways. But one of the, if for Anglicans, one of the ways that that's handed down is through the liturgy. Hmm. Uh, we have the, the idea of lex orandi, uh, lex credendi. The law of prayer is the law of belief. Our worship service, the liturgy that we we engage in every Sunday teaches us that story. Uh, the pictures that we see in our worship space, the vestments that we use, the cross, the Eucharist, the host, the the wine, uh, the prayer book, all these things that we use teach us who we are uh, in Christ. Uh, and it, help us, it helps us to live that out so that when we go out into the world, when we enter into the city of man, uh, which as Augustine tells us is aimed at love of self versus love of God, uh, when we go out into that, we're able to see, you know, maybe this practice is antithetical to, to the gospel. Maybe this, maybe this particular practice doesn't line up with the story that I know to be my story. Uh, and gaining that lens then um, can help me then to start to see the differences. Now, as Jimmy says, we have to learn to grow into that discernment. Part of that is knowing that there is such a thing as the city of God versus the city of man. Right. Uh, and so then being aware to that. Some of that is doing cultural exegesis. What is the, the lay of the land, as it were, uh, and call, naming those things uh, so that then we can think through the practice um, and, and decide, uh, how does this line up or not? Uh, but all those things take practice, and it takes time, and I, I would uh, like to say it takes study. Hmm. Uh, we have to feed That's the good. mind. We have to feed um, feed the stories, feed uh, our, our theology, um, but not just for the sake of the mind. Uh, the contemplative life doesn't just lead to m- more knowing um, and in a propositional sense, it's it's meant to be like a know-how. Theology should become our our doxology. It should lead to worship. Yeah, what, what I'm hearing you saying—that's really good, Andrew. What I'm hearing you saying too is um, that uh, we almost need to like we we know we use the word culture all the time. We talk about what's happening in the culture. We talk about pop culture. Our, our phones are part of our culture. Um, but in some ways, like our definition of culture is too thin. Like our, our, oh, we, we, we term, yeah. we, ter- we, when we say culture, we're talking about various artifacts that are out there. And therefore, when we talk about uh, something competing, a Christian culture, we try to um, uh, have various like artifacts of Christian culture that oppose right. that, right? Um, but if you want something um, that you would be like more sensitive to than the competing culture around us, uh, including uh, digital culture, if you want something, then you need that deeper culture. How, how does this affect my day-to-day life? Uh, what, what does it mean? Uh, what does it mean simply to experience uh, communion with God in prayer? Like that, that's, right. that's something that is, can't be opposed by an artifact. Like if you've got it, you would know when you're losing it, right? Um, like how do, how do we build that up, that kind of thing? Is that, is that right? Yeah, I think that, yeah. That's, that's absolutely right. Uh, and understanding um, the way that we engage in that culture as well. Like yeah. How is it that we, we come to, to live in that that deeper, thicker um, understanding yeah, of what culture is. Jimmy, go um, ahead. I just want to offer maybe just a real quick kind of practical thing that maybe for people that are not like, that are just kind of starting from the ground floor maybe, 
um, to in terms of our story, in terms of in terms of internalizing our story, would be to get in the habit of saying the creed, mm. you know, daily, it, because that sort of sums up our our, our story as, as as Christians. Yeah, and 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 that's and that's not just like the the only thing, but that that might be a good starting point for folks, you know, right. that are starting at the ground floor. Like I said, is maybe just get in the habit of every day just saying the creed. Mm-hmm. And, and, and internalizing that story and then building from there. And I yeah. think that that can help um, the journey, can start the, the process or start the journey there. That's great. Thanks. I'm going to jump on to the next one here. Um, all right. So first, uh, these, we've got three uh, opportunities or ways that we can develop discipleship in digital Babylon. The first there that we were talking about, develop muscles of cultural discernment. Uh, another way that uh, the gospel discipleship can flourish from within this culture that we're in right now. Uh, here, here's one that Barna gives us. In the midst of isolation, develop meaningful intergenerational relationships. Uh, this, I think, is pretty big. In the midst of isolation, develop meaningful intergenerational relationships. Here's where they get this from, is that they compared that resilient group to people who were in other categories, and they were, they were twice as likely to feel valued by people in life that were older than them, the resilience, twice as likely to feel valued uh, by, than people in the lower groups, and, and, and to welcome positive criticism from those who are older. Um, you know, we talked about having a having a thick view of culture, something that can't be opposed by something that's shallow, uh, no matter how flashy it is, right? Um, and not 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 um, thinking that like, oh, well, there's a fancy culture out there. Uh, we need a great brand Jesus or something like that <laughs> uh, that just capitulates to what's going on already. But part of that would be having thick networks of intergenerational relationships. Um, that's not something that can be faked by um, watching certain movies or being on social media all the time. Like be, Wa- being, watching reruns of the Golden Girls. Yeah, you know, you know, I'm I'm thinking right now. Oh, thanks, Jimmy. Uh, <laughs> I'm thinking right now, though, back to something you said earlier about uh, teens wanting approval from social media, and this is huge, right? Because teens do. I think in general, like uh, approval means so much to hear that from, and that that's what feels great when someone comments or share, when someone shares your social media post or something like that. But what feels really good is when people who are older than you respect what you've said, what you've done. They respect the process that you've been involved in. Um, that That's so meaningful and cannot be easily replaced. Yeah, I think uh, what immediately comes to my mind is think about um, the role of the family mm-hmm. and think about how historically um, it was in the family where you, you got that intergenerational um, relationships right, right. In, in in a family that was uh living in the same area you'd have grandparents you'd have parents you'd have uh grandkids kids and in that context you would learn your story you would learn who you were meant to be your meaning and your purpose um but that's been almost in a lot of ways obliterated we don't we don't have that anymore but i think for the church the place where we we should understand best the family uh, we should be the place where we are nurturing healthy families. Yeah, yeah. That's a, a place where we can be an answer to the culture. Uh, we can, in in uh, in helping our families be healthy and whole, we can enforce that sort of uh, multi generational um, 
relationships. Yeah. And uh, going to Andy Crouch, one way he in- would encourage us to do that, just something practical here, uh, is in his family, they have a curfew for all devices, right? right. right. So they, they don't turn on devices, be it TV, be it uh, phone, internet, whatever, uh, between a certain hour. Well, they turn it off at a certain hour at night, and then they don't turn it back on right. until uh, a certain hour in the morning. And so then you don't have that distraction. Let me come back to that one because we're going to get that on our third point more deeply. Um, So I think almost the definition of social media is chosen community, right? It's it's the people that you want to be in community with, and you can narrow your community down to those people. You can unfriend the people that you don't want to be around, whatever. And and the the algorithms that, uh, that Facebook or different things like that use specifically narrow those down to the people that you're most likely to interact with. I think we got to see that too. Is that kind of like, is it has a negative impact on say like the church because the church is not your select group of people that you want Mm -hmm. to worship with. It's, you know, it's, you know, it's it's even people that maybe aren't, you know, desirable right. or you consider desirable. And we're called to be in community with people that say we love that say we maybe we find more desirable and those who are undesirable. And we're called to love those people. Right. You know, and I think that challenges us. And I think it's easier for us to maybe or for, for us to kind of fall into our own little groups because it's like, okay, this is something I can manage and this is something that like I'm okay with loving these people. And, and so I feel like as a church and part of the intergenerational uh, right. things is that it, it challenges us to love people who we might be considering undesirable. And, and this is gospel, right? This is uh, Galatians or something like that. It's, it's like the church, the church is the group of people who have come into Christ regardless of uh, age, gender, race, all, like it's re- and, and you are you are by definition, being in this group, in relationship with all those people. Like, to tie it back in with what Andrew was saying, you're the family of yeah. God, right, 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 right. as oh, it turns like out. It. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Good. Uh, so it's not just like people that sure. you love that you wouldn't love. Like, oh, isn't, you know, that sense of diversity nice of like, oh, all sorts of different people all together. I mean, that's good. But the point is that, no, this is your family. Like, mm-hmm. these right. are the most important people. We all um, have the same father in Christ. And if I happen to remember... The brothers and sisters are the ones who obey the will of God, um, not even biological family, which is interesting, isn't it? Um, and even says something for those who um, don't have the relationships biologically that they wish they had or, or that have been broken right. or in uh, every, that sort of thing. In every that, fam- that there is a family um, here in the church for you um, and, and that that's the most important thing. Going back to something uh, that Andrew is talking about um, same uh, source uh, Andy Crouch was talking about. Um, even w- in terms of um, virtue formation, though, you mentioned the word distraction. Um, and isn't that as parents when we're most tempted, uh, tempted is maybe strong, when we most want to um, hand the glowing cube, as he would say, to the child, as uh, when we want to uh, get rid, when we want to cause a distraction, to get rid of those bad feelings, to get rid of the boredom. Um, but that that doesn't actually build the muscle of virtue. Um, that doesn't actually produce creativity. Um, and in fact, it does the opposite. It says, oh, next time you feel bad, here's another medic, here's the medication, you know, here. And this is no judgment on any of us parents who do this uh, on occasion when we need to. But it's more so the pattern of that, I think, that we want right, to be right. aware of. Um, 
as far as tying this in with, oh, this is actually important. And what that does is create space for you as a parent to interact with your child and to say, okay, what do we do when we're bored around the house? Um, you know, and all of us with toddlers are constantly reading and rereading books and we're, you know, playing the same games over and over again and all these sorts of things. But in that interaction, there's creativity happening, whereas with a device, um, Matt, it's, maybe your, your daughter's a little too young but you'll find out soon enough that when there's toddlers around in the house there is no boredom mm. <laughs> there, there's tiredness <laughs> uh, there's parental boredom <laughs> well and that, boredom that's actually what he says isn't it uh that actually it's that's to help us get yeah, right. through our kids boredom more <laughs> yeah, than yeah. it is to help their boredom yeah, yeah. yeah. so that, that's really good and that's let's definitely talk about that I, before we move on you, you just said some really good stuff there about the church's family matt mm. which is um it's not just important. It's it's so compelling. Mm. Um, th- some of the data from Barna, they, they found that um, the resilient disciples, compared to the other groups, were 60 to 100% more likely to have a close friend. Mm. Uh, they, or they were 60 to 100% more likely to have friends who help them make, uh, who help make them be a better person. Um, that is an existential desire. Uh, that's something mm-hmm. that people want. Mm-hmm. Um, they don't necessarily know that they don't have it to when they don't, uh, but they know something's wrong and they know it when they see it. And that's a, a beautiful witness of the church and opportunity. Okay. Uh, number three, uh, third way that discipleship can flourish from within culture. And this is the end here for us. Uh, curb self-centered tendencies by engaging in countercultural mission. Uh, this is this is strong language in some ways. Curb self-centered tendencies by engaging in countercultural mission. And and one of the specific things that's recommended here is uh, the need for self-control, the need for uh, engaging in uh, they call it digital sabbaths. Uh, a prerequisite for that might be understanding a Sabbath in general, um, <laughs> practicing Sabbath what? as such, um, uh, and some degree of abstaining, though uh, that kind of thing. What are some ways that you gentlemen have tried to do this in your own lives, in your families, with yourself, ways that you've struggled with it? Before we do that, can you unpack what they mean by, um, what's the, the, the second yeah, yeah. part so of cur- that? So curb self-centered tendencies by engaging in countercultural mission. They, they, yeah, what do they mean by countercultural got, mission? Because that, that... They've got two parts to it. There's a negative side of not relying on technology, the abstaining, right? There's a positive side of um, pursuing mission, purpose, service, caring for others, um, that kind of thing. Um, we can talk about that. I think that's um, that's something that's needed in people's lives in general. Um, so could we boil that down to saying live a disciplined life? Yeah, I think that's good. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It doesn't sound as exciting, though. <laughs> mission, mission always sounds nice. I like countercultural. Just, yeah, just yeah, yeah. kind of nice. Okay. Let, let's just start on that, that like, abstaining. What, what are some ways that we try to curb the self-centered, te- self-centered tendencies? So it's I, like there, there's, like, a slope to our lives right now. Sloping, there's, I guess this is always true, but certainly this is something that mobile technology does. It increases the slope towards self-centeredness. H- how do we do that in our lives? How do we address that? How do we work against it? Well, to tell a story on myself, if I could, uh, I was having a conversation with my wife or I should more accurate, accurately say she was having a conversation with me. And I say that because unbeknownst to me, I had pulled my cell phone out of my pocket and was curing my perceived boredom 
uh, and was flipping through. Um, I don't even know what I was flipping through. It was sort of mindless thing. I didn't even notice it. Uh, and my wife said, you know, it's really hard to talk to you when you're on that thing. And I didn't even realize that I was on that thing. Uh, so that was sort of a, a wake up call that maybe there's, there's a problem here. Uh, fortunately, Lent was beginning the next week and I made a ad hoc decision that, okay, well, I'm going to take the internet off my phone for, uh, for the season of Lent and take, uh, that Sabbath from the internet. Uh, I loved that so much. I was, I felt such a sense of freedom from that, that I actually haven't put it back on, on my phone. That was two years ago. And so what do you do for celebrity gossip now, Andrew? Praise Jesus. I <laughs> am so out of touch with that. <laughs> I, I like how the fact that he, when he was talking about this uh, scenario here, that he said that he was curing his perceived boredom with his phone. At the same time, he's talking, his wife's having a conversation with him. So obviously, it's like he was bored with whatever his wife was. No, no, I was saying I thought I was bored, <laughs> but I don't know because I had was on my phone. She might have been telling me something very interesting, but because I was distracted and I had this habitual thing in my pocket, right. I just went straight to it. I, I, Rebecca, I, this wasn't about you. Don't worry. <laughs> right. No, this um, was about me. I, I will kind of say, like, kind of jumping off of that, like, one of the things that I've done recently is um, with, um, just like with social media, is I've really, con you know, contemplating, like, the purpose. So, like, having an Instagram account, like, what, you know, I, I recently got rid of my Instagram account because I just thought to myself, like, what's really the purpose of it? Like, what am I gaining from this, from having this? Okay, yeah, people like pictures, whatever, videos. Okay, that's cool. It's not really benefiting me. Mm -hmm. And I just feel like what I would do is I would just, well, I would look at it. And I'd have no reason to look at it other than to check and see. And I've just decided that, you know what? There's no reason for me to have this on my phone. It's just like with, I don't have a Facebook app on my phone. Right. I, you know, I still have a Facebook profile for some, you know, for things, if, but like, I don't have it on my phone because I'm just like, I would just sit there mindlessly going and I felt like there, there was no purpose of it. For so it. slimming down, what do we really need? What don't we need? Matt, you mentioned yeah. also Andy Crouch. Uh, he, he talked, yeah, he says, um, put your phone to bed before you go to bed, uh, get up before your phone gets up, you mm -hmm. setting yeah. certain hours yeah. and that kind of thing. Yeah. And on the, um, embodied part, I, uh, heard an uh, interview I think him say uh, before he picks his phone up he likes to go outside mm. and even if it's like <laughs> a little more difficult in Buffalo here uh, yeah, I don't want to go outside <laughs> he's in Chicago degrees, you know, I've been there yeah, yeah. no uh, no true. cakewalk good, good. Um, but even if it was for like 10 seconds uh, in the dead of winter with six <laughs> inches of snow outside as there is today uh, just to know that, okay, I'm not sure. um, That's good. pure will uh, trying to exert myself on uh, this thing uh, as soon as I wake up. There could be um, like an aesthetic practice there where every time you look at your phone, you have to go outside <laughs> and spend, you know, two minutes standing in the snow barefoot yeah. and aesthetic, on top aesthetic of your, uh, <laughs> on top of your electric pole. Um, yeah, so uh, that's helpful. And I likewise have a Linton story. A um, number of years ago, I would read the news every night before bed. You know, I wanted to be a, a world Christian, understand what was going on. It would increase my prayer life, of course, um, but found many months in that actually it was a source of anxiety. So I said, you know, for Lent, um, I'll, I'll, I'll 
delete this app, whatever, um, and never likewise came back on. Um, and I've got a recent testimony, if we're, if we're doing testimonies, um, that uh, since we've started thinking about this kind of as our little group here, um, I uh, have noted not picking my phone up as the first thing that I do in the morning. Mm-hmm. My alarm's still on, so technically I pick it up, uh, but not going right to the phone. Uh, and it's actually been like freeing just to kind of have this conversation yeah, and, yeah. and think about that sort of thing. So I'm not going to claim victory in all areas of digital Babylon here, uh, but uh, just having these sorts of conversations I think is helpful yeah. as far as being more intentional about what my practices are. Can we count that as the first fruit of this podcast? First mm-hmm. It actually happened. And yeah. I will say, well, if I can recommend, I did, I bought an alarm clock uh, so that right. I would not have to, so I can, don't take my phone into my bedroom. I think it's like, mm. count, like yeah. even That's just awesome. like, we go back to like countercultural, like just our conversation here and the things that we're doing and the fact that we're not going to our phones for, for information, you know, that we're not simply, like, I feel like that alone in some ways is countercultural sure. because of just how addicted you know, our society is to these devices. Yeah. So, so, so we've got a bunch of things. We've got some, we've got daily practices, you know, sometimes it just feels really freeing to uh, tell my wife, uh, I'm going out for a while. I'm not going to have my phone. <laughs> uh, sorry, you won't be able to reach me. Um, Your wife agrees to that? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I have much to learn. Sure. <laughs> um, so there's daily things, though, about when we put it down, uh, you know, it's whatever. It's dinner time, putting the kids to bed. I'm just it, next two hours. I'm uh, just going to be off. I'm not going to have it. Uh, that's helpful. Certainly actual Sabbath practices. Uh, yeah. Reduction of media is probably something we all need to consider on a Sabbath that we're taking regularly. I will regularly. say, like, what, since I've cut down my social media stuff, like, I, I don't, I barely take out my phone when I'm at home and stuff because I just have literally no reason. Yeah, that's good. It. And then I, I would, and to what you said, Matt, I think it's probably at this point, so uh, Christians and churches like ours that practice seasons of Lent, um, we're used to, like, giving up some kind of foods during Lent and that kind of thing. I think it's probably necessary to have a digital component to our Lent at this point, yes. right? Yes. Um, like it's just something that we have to, like it, every year we've got to have a time where it's like, I'm, I'm slimming down, I'm going to shut off the unnecessary stuff and I just need to detox for a while. Uh, it's probably necessary at this point. Yeah, that um, reminds me of, uh, I believe it was Pascal talking about the um, most dangerous thing we do is, uh, sit alone with God for a day on end. Uh, and I think I definitely start feeling that around Lenten season when I'm, you know, okay, I'm, I'm not depending on food. Okay. Right. Uh, I'm not depending on my phone distraction. Okay. All right. <laughs> so what do I have? Uh, and that's exactly the question of Lent, uh, Good is way. beautiful 17th century French philosophy <laughs> theology like Pascal did. <laughs> <laughs> right. right. It probably improved my study of it. Yes. Um, but I think, uh, these things that we depend on um, are necessary. God gave them to us as um, good things that we're to use wisely, as um, your other point was saying. Um, but they can also be um, things that we depend on such that um, they start getting in the way of our being with God. Um, and I think that's a helpful, um, the Sabbath idea is helpful even in directing our attention back to God in ways that we can be distracted from with our devices. Just real quick, I know we're, we're wanting to close up. I just want to note that as part of our disciplining ourselves, it's important to keep in mind that we're talking about fasting something, giving something up, but there are also positive disciplines too. Yeah. And it's always a good practice, I think, when, we, when you take out something to put something back in. 
right? So I'm going to take out reading the news every night. Well, do I just leave that void or do I fill it with something else? Do I fill it with uh, reading the Bible? Do I fill it with reading some other story? What am I filling that with? And so there's always a, a, a balance and a counterbalance uh, to think about. The, the negative discipline, the taking something out, but then also putting something back in. Excellent. Thanks, Andrew. This has been a great discussion. Thanks, gentlemen. Thank you to all of our listeners. Um, I think this is something really important. This is uh, this is something that we're this is like a way that we're working through theology, to, practical theology in our lives together. In many ways, like we're trying to figure this out. This is the culture we're living in, so we need to talk about it. We need to try things out. We need to see how this lines up with a vision of good life. What it means to be fully alive. What it what it does to our spiritual practices. How we're changing over time. What it does to children, families. All of these things, uh, we're working out step by step. That's what we're doing on the Devices and Desires podcast. I hope you can join us for more.